This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and it's my honor to drive the bus this week. I'm joined by the force of nature, Shereen Ahmed, freelance journalist and cat lover in Toronto, Canada, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State, and the formidable Lindsay Gibbs, wordsmith at Think Progress in D.C. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our patrons who support this podcast every month through our Patreon campaign. We could not do this show without you. If you haven't become a patron, think it over. You can check out a meticulously directed video with all of us, and it may just convince you to pledge monthly. For a few dollars, you can get access to extra content and our undying gratitude. On this week's show, we're going to chat NBA, highlight some of the stories about black athletes we think are worth more attention in this month of black history. And to kick off our Black History Month guest interviews, Shireen sits down with Renee Hess on Black Girl Hockey Club. So this week, there have been some really interesting turn of events in the NBA, which I feel like always heats up right around Super Bowl time. Shireen, what did you have your eye on this week? Oh, this is so much fun. Even our Slack <laughs> chat about the NBA gossip and trade deadline has been so, so exhilarating. So for those that don't know, the NBA trade deadline is actually February 7th. So right now we're going through this huge rumor mill. And what's happening in the center of all these discussions are new... Orleans Pelicans player Anthony Davis and where he may or may not go. He's been there for, this is the seventh year with the Pelicans, but he formally asked for a trade on January 28th. Now this sort of sent ripples through because, you know, he is literally the only player that I can name for the Pelicans, but one of the most outstanding. Now he's put in for a transfer and now what happens because of this is this weird seismic shift in the NBA because of these rumors. And if you thought that Ines Cantor's Turkey diplomatic gong show was interesting, this is way more interesting. Now, the Knicks seem to be, I don't know, I don't want to use the word colluding, but conspiring maybe to acquire him and what that looks like and what it could look like then. We saw suspicions that, no, Durant might go to the Knicks because he'll be a free agent. But do you really think he's going to leave Golden State? I don't know. But those are just my opinions. But then there was, I saw a tweet, I think Sarah Spain tweeted out that there could be, the Knicks could come up with something like Durant, Zion Williamson, which I don't think will ever happen, 
and Anthony Davis at the New York Knicks. So all of a sudden, you're going to be Knicks fans. I don't know. It's kind of bizarre. But I will tell you that throughout all of this, there's a little bit of pettiness because the Pelicans have already raced Anthony Davis from the pregame video, which is like super petty. And I'm totally here for it because like I just love how petty these people are. There's a lot of different things. I'm not going to talk about the possibility of Kawhi Leonard leaving the Raptors because it'll just make me really sad and anxious. So I'm not going to address that and I'm going to pretend it's never going to happen, even though he did buy a $13.3 million house in California. But you know what? Maybe he's just on the down low and did that. He also did buy property in Toronto. I'm just going to leave that there. But anyways, also Kyrie leaving Boston, Kyrie Irving, and I'll say this, I love him, and I, I love him, Amira. I do love him. I love his Whoa, indigenous this show identity. Is full of mixed feelings. Uh, mixed feelings. <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap it up soon, Amira, and throw it to you. I know that you feel about Kyrie the way I feel about Kawhi Leonard, and I respect that. I also respect this man, his you know indigenous identity, what he did at Standing Rock. I really, really, really love Little Mountain. That being said, Little Mountain might be shifting also away from Boston. So we don't know. This is what I love is a bit of the way that the free agents and the NBA players control the dynamic. And I really like this. After what's considered a rookie contract, for those of you that don't know, it's a four-year contract that they have that they sign. They're essentially free agents. Now, I think what's out there is everybody's assuming that this whole pack of superstar athletes and NBA players will all flock to LA to be with LeBron because honestly if I was an NBA player I want to want to be mentored by LeBron also but the thing is that that's not reality I know it's possible and it's been said that the Knicks could offer up to 156 million for a four-year contract that's a lot of money so I love LeBron and I love LeBron's mentorship but I also love that cash money so we got to think realistically in terms of where they could go and they're going to go for and I hope what's in their best interest or what their agents negotiates so there's a lot of other stuff we could talk about but I'm just going to throw it back Bren to the rest of the crew and see what your feelings are about that I feel like Amira's already expressed that she has some feelings (laughs) here (laughs) So everything is wonderful and great when you're winning. And so when Kyrie came to Boston and we had a really young team and they like were surprisingly suddenly good. And then even when he got hurt and the young boys took them, you know, to the Eastern uh, Conference Championships, it was a little remarkable. And there's this feeling of, oh my goodness, this is what's happening without Kyrie, but just his presence has really changed the vibe. And when next year, when he's back and Gordon's back, like it's just gonna be lit. Like, you know, and then this season has been struggles. It has been, you know, inconsistent. And again, winning's the balm that kind of puts the, you know, puts the fleece over your eyes. And so now it all kind of feels like it's coming apart at the seams. And so now you get leaked reports saying that Brad Stevens and Kyrie aren't getting along. There's teammates that are now having frustration with each other and friction with each other. And so Kyrie, when previously asked about leaving Boston, said, no, he'll resign. Like he was always very committed. (laughs) And then this week, when they said, are you going to resign? He said, well, ask me July 1st. Then he said, let me do what's best for me and my family. And he's like, I don't know people anything. And so all of a shit. sudden he you said, I don't know feel, anyone's shit. I don't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know anybody's shit. Right. And so now it just feels like this is not the happy, loving. <laughs> no, he <laughs> well, seemed downright know. hostile. 
Like, yeah, this week. exactly. Whoa. I understand. Like, it's been frustrating watching this yeah. season. So I can only imagine playing it and what's going on internally. But, you know, I really have loved, um, you know, having Kyrie on the team um, for, you know, reasons that Shereen alluded to, but also just because he's a damn good player. And, you know, I just don't like it. I don't like it. I get too attached to people. Free agency, like, really hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay? Yeah, as a fan, free agency is super, super stressful. First, I do want to say, obviously, WNBA free agency is going on right now. We did a whole like 40 minute uh, hot take podcast on this about a week ago. So go check that out. And I also, you know, we I will reconvene with some of my WNBA friends uh, once things have settled down, once we kind of figure out what's going on with Cambage and Maya Moore to react to it. So I don't want anyone to think that we're forgetting about that drama. But I do look, okay, here's my thing. For, I am pro labor, right? Like I want the athletes to have more rights than the billionaire owners, right? Who don't do anything. So I want to get that out there. But sometimes I worry that like when we're talking about all of these trades, we're just talking about these huge markets, right? Like it becomes this conversation between New York, Los Angeles, Boston, and sometimes Philly, right? Like it just, it limits it so much. And look, as a, as a Charlotte Hornets fan, as a fan of a small market team, I do worry sometimes that this, that the players now have, there, there seems to be no incentive for players to stay in small market teams beyond the, their, the required years after they're drafted. And that, I have to say it does worry me a little bit because four teams does not a league make <laughs> because there are a lot of great fans all, you know, throughout in these these smaller market teams. So there is a little bit of me that worries about the fact that, you know, there's this this contract where the this max contract that you can only offer if it's your player, if it's like the player you you drafted basically. And, you know, so that's supposed to give the teams that much more power to keep the players that they drafted to keep the Anthony Davises, the Kawhi Leonard's. But what we're seeing is because these players can make so much money in endorsements and because the contracts are already so big, that doesn't have the power that I think the NBA thought it would have because the players, you know, can make up that difference if they get into a bigger market. So anyways, I do want to say that that is kind of a concern of mine. And do you guys think that that is valid or am I just being buzzkill? Amira? Yeah, Linz, I think that's a really interesting, great point. And I think it's true to extent that, you know, place has a really big factor. And also that in the NBA, players have been able historically to also, um, relative to, say, the NFL, exert a bit more power in their future and in their trade process and their free agency. But I also am thinking, right, about sometimes what gets lost in this is what it means to uproot your life from one city to another, one place to another family, schools, you know, just what those spaces look like. And I'm thinking when you were saying that, Linz, I thought about Green Bay. I was thinking about Martellus Bennett talking about how there's nothing in Green Bay and like how it feels to be living in Green Bay as a Black person. Like there's nothing there but football. And when people are looking at trades and free agency and decisions, that those are also factors that go in that we don't necessarily see 
behind, you know, the negotiation is sometimes, you know, you'll take a little bit less of a deal to stay in a place that works for you and your family and your kids and, you know, has more than the black people that just happen to be on your football roster. And, you know, and sometimes there's enough money to make you forget those things. So I think it is, you know, a valid point of consideration as well. Shireen? Yeah, just a quick thing to jump off what Amira is saying about relocation and stuff. Like there are fruiting families and a lot of families that have communities in those places. Like I know that in the NBA, a lot of people are like, Toronto, why do you want to all go up to Toronto? I mean, DeMar DeRozan loved it here. And Kyle Lowry loves it here. And we're sad that DeMar DeRozan left because essentially he was very much the backbone of the Raptors. And, you know, it, it was devastating. We all got over it really quickly when Kawhi Leonard came, but that's another thing. But the reality is, like, shifting. A lot of people <laughs> a lot of people talk about, you know, what it's like to come to Toronto because it's snowy, it's cold, it's away, you know. But, I mean, people like Serge Ibaka love it here. I mean, it's, it's a great city. You can get a goose parka, Canada goose parka. Like, I don't know what to say, but other than we have the fourth largest uh, gay media in, in, in the league. But also that what Amir is saying is that withdrawal from community, that withdrawal from what you know. Players have families and it's hard for them and it's hard to readjust. And every city has very is very alive with its own culture, not just in basketball, but in the community. And I think that's relevant. And, you know, we want to talk about that with understanding that players are people. And I know there was an article that somebody had written in in local Toronto media just about why Leonard really likes it here because nobody bothers him. Like Torontonians are very polite. I'm not one of those people because if I saw him on the street, you best believe (laughs) that I would have been like, I want to talk to you. But he enjoys it here. So it's just really interesting. And I really like that you brought that up, Amira, because it's something that I forget about sometimes and 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 not to counter any of those amazing points about the people and the family and things like that but i think that there's not very much of a discussion about what those markets mean that you alluded to shireen so in terms of like the new york knicks for example or the fact that the mets is like the third most lucrative franchise in major league baseball you know which is just bonkers And that has to do with those media markets. So a lot of times, too, agents are looking to think about the value of a player beyond their NBA salary. And that is another consideration. Like, why did Neymar leave for France? You know, it also is a huge calculation in terms of money. Marta's salary was better in Sweden than it is in Orlando. But her opportunity among Miami, Orlando, Latino crew, right, community is much larger. Her possibility to have expanded sponsorships and things like that. So I know that's a whole other consideration and it's sort of impossible to monetize precisely. But it's definitely something that goes on in players' heads, I would imagine. At least it's something that goes on in their agents' heads. Lindsay? Yeah, I would say, okay, so I'm kind of countering myself, right? Because on one hand, I'm worried about, you know, small market teams and about the league being so dominant in these big markets because the players all, let's just, let's say it, what it is, they kind of collude to get there. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of collusion going on in the NBA. Uh, We all know that. So, yeah, I think that that is a legitimate concern um, and it is something that has to be balanced. But what I do like is I feel like free agency keeps owners 
honest in a way and gives players a way to kind of keep owners honest, right? Like, why did LeBron leave Cleveland uh, two times, right? Because the owner there is horrible and kept making horrible decisions, right? Because the, the actual organization is a dumpster fire. And, you know, if, if, if LeBron hadn't grown up in Cleveland, there's, and, you know, hadn't been attached to that, there, then we wouldn't have, you know, he would never have been there. Like we wouldn't have even seen that because he he would have gotten out the first time and never come back. So I think that what I like is, you know, the Pelicans have made some really bad moves. You know, they got really kind of screwed over a little bit by the DeMarcus uh, Cousins stuff, of course, because his injury but I think what Anthony Davis was saying is we aren't winning enough. I want to win in this organization. I don't trust this organization to put me in a place to win. And so that's why I'm leaving. You know, we've seen Philly really wanting to make some moves to make sure that Joel M- Embiid is happy there because their concern is like we the way to keep him is to win, is to make moves so we're actually winning, to spend money so that we can win. I mean, there's no better example of this than, than the Knicks right now. Yes, the Knicks might get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving or Anthony Davis. Uh, now they have the, the max space. But let's let's face it, the reason Kristaps wanted to leave is because he didn't trust anything the organization was doing. And why would he, right? Like, why would mm-hmm. he trust the Knicks in what James Dolan is doing right now at all? Like, there's, there's <laughs> nothing in history that tells you you should trust James Dolan. Mm-hmm. And so while James Dolan is lucky that he still has the media market in New York that might pull some of these players regardless of his fuck-upperies. I think that what we're seeing is Deadspin had a great article that was like uh, you know, Kristaps Porzingis doesn't trust the Knicks plan and like of course he doesn't. (laughs) Just of course. So look, if there's a way for players to keep owners to keep trying to actually win and to get a plan and to not just be counting their money, that's also that's a good thing. Yeah, sadly, um, you haven't seen my once beloved Detroit Pistons in the news as coming up with any good ideas for this for this trade season. Sadly, at no amount of Little Caesars T-shirts that they gun into the crowd mm. is going to make anyone Little convinced Caesars that they know what they're doing. That's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it is so sad. That's what they do. Uh, it's, I like really the breadsticks. Oh, I'm not against the five dollar Little Caesar pizza. I, like that's how I got through college. But <laughs> um, but that this is their you know marketing trick to make people forget that they have like an embarrassing record and they also treat players pretty poorly. It's not going to solve. Little Caesars can't solve this much as much as we might want it to. I am so excited to have Renee Hess on Burn It All Down today. Renee Hess is an associate professor of English, a freelance pop culture writer, and an avid hockey fan from sunny California. With a master's degree in literature, Renee believes in the power of media and uses hockey literature and film to discuss topics like discrimination, the wage gap, and the importance of sports fandom. Renee is currently working on a book about hockey, race, and culture from the lens of a Black woman. She is an unapologetic Pittsburgh Penguin fan, but welcomes fans of all teams to enjoy the game of hockey with the Black Girl Hockey Club. 
Renee is the sole contributing writer to the BGHC website, and she's an incredible singer. And I can't even imagine how beautiful the whole house would sound when she sings in the shower. So Renee, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Hi, Shireen. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get started on this. Where and when did you fall in love with hockey? I have a great intro story on how I came to the game of hockey when I was in Pittsburgh at an academic conference. I was actually at dinner with the women from my department, and we were noticing that there was a hockey game on the television in this restaurant in Pittsburgh. And I kind of asked the bartender, you know, hockey, why is there a hockey game on, you know? And he said, oh, Pittsburgh is a hockey town. And I had no idea. This was back in 2011. A few years later, uh, after kind of listening to the game on the radio and and keeping up with what was going on in my local area, I'm in California. I went to my first live hockey game. And after that, I was hooked. It was love at first sight. You know, live hockey is amazing. Nothing like it. It's so fast and and just such an exciting environment. And I've been a fan ever since. Did you play hockey at all? No, I wish. I mean, I think it looks like a great way to get out aggression, but I'm horrible on what I like to call knife ice shoes. No, I, <laughs> I'm, I don't have the best balance. So no. So let's talk a little bit about Black Girl Hockey Club. And you've seen not only your Twitter following, but you've seen interest from all over the country. And I would suspect Canada as well. How do you feel that the Black Girl Hockey Club, what kind of community does it provide that's currently missing from predominant hockey culture? You know, my original goal with the Black Girl Hockey Club was to create a safe space for Black women to enjoy hockey, even whether you are a player or a hockey mom or a fan, the Black Girl Hockey Club is a place where Black women can come together, whether it's on social media or at live events, and enjoy hockey together. It really stemmed from my desire to spend time with Black women at a hockey game. I live in Southern California. I go to a lot of Anaheim Ducks and LA Kings games. And interestingly enough, I had never seen two Black women together at a hockey game. And I wanted to do something about that. So I got together a group of Black women on Twitter who were hockey fans. And this took almost a year to actually find four or five of them. And we got together in a group chat and we called it jokingly the Black Girl Hockey Club. And we decided let's get together for a game. That's That would be amazing. Most of these girls are on the East Coast. And so we decided, what about a Capitals game? They have a couple Black players, a couple Black minority owners. They just won the cup, you know, in 2018. That would be a great place to have a meetup. And the idea just kind of took a life of its own. 
the National Hockey League got involved and they wanted to help make the trip amazing one for us. And so we got the opportunity to go to D.C. and see a game. And it ended up being not just two or three or four of us, but I believe we had 40, 45 black women and their kids and their, you know, their friends. And we had uh, kids as young as six years old and a grandmother who was 82. That's incredible. So yeah, it was, it was so much fun. I even met up with my sister who lives in Ohio. I haven't seen her in a year. And I said, I'm taking you to a hockey game. Let's do this. And so she met me in DC and I took her to her first hockey game. And it's so funny because now she's hooked. She's got the NHL app on her phone and she says she's a Capitals fan. Ah. <laughs> try to get it to, the, to my team. But you know, it's all good. I love the Capitals. They they did right by us. We had so much fun. No wonder she's a Capitals fan. And I love that you're out here giving them props because that's incredible. And the Caps have a really cool history of sort of doing that. As you know, Fatma Ali was um, invited out there and she's a player from the UAE, the UAE United Arab Emirates. And like, you're like, what? The woman in Dubai is playing hockey. And they, she actually got to do the ceremonial, you know, uh, face off, like the puck drop. And she loves Ovi. So it was just, it was, it was incredible. And that's actually something that occurred to me was that when I saw your tweets about the meetup growing up, and I grew up on the East Coast of Canada and I was born into a Habs loving family. I think my dad is a quiet Winnipeg. Jets supporter, but he doesn't really say anything about it. But my mother is like a beautifully obnoxious Habs fan. And so is my brother. And I think the only man my mother had eyes for other than my father was Guy Lafleur from afar. And she had the opportunity, my brother took her to the Bell Center a couple years ago, and she got to meet him. And she bought a beautiful red hijab to match her jersey, a new one, and she was so excited. So I, I felt so much of that excitement and because it was considered, it's not considered the norm. So what I love about Black Girl Hockey Club is that you are recreating what the norm can be. When you were there, did you have people kind of be like, what are they doing here? Like, what's, was grandma doing here? Like, did that, did you sense any of that as you were visiting? You know what I did? It's a feeling, you know, as a black girl who goes to a lot of hockey games that I'm used to. But there's power in numbers. We were so vibrant and everybody was so excited. I think that that excitement rubbed off on the crowd around us, which is what, you know, hockey's all about. But yeah, I, I know, I remember when we were walking in, we got to enter into uh, the Capital One Center about two hours before the game start started for a special reception uh, upstairs. And there was a man with his daughter who kind of got in the middle of our group and he thought they were opening the gates for everybody. And it was just us. And, and it was funny because I, I think I, I saw when the, the spark kind of behind his eyes when he realized that he was the only white guy <laughs> in the middle of all these black women. And when the security guard who was a black woman asked him, honey, are you with them? He was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, you don't belong here. Oh, it was it was like the opposite <laughs> totally. of what it normally is. Yeah, but that was kind of funny. But yeah, you know, we, we got a, a kind of questioning look from a, a lot of the fans there. But what was really cool was every worker 
in there, whether they were, you know, leading people to their seats or manning the elevator. They were high-fiving us tell, in welcoming us to their arena, just telling us how excited they were to see that representation. And that really warmed my heart that, you know, we could, we could have that connection and they could see some of that representation, probably that those workers don't often see like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and just, I hope everybody listening sort of realizes that how powerful this is. And particularly, you know, just the CAPS as an organization. Um, this is a great way to show and to exemplify how to grow the game in different communities. And do you have any other advice other than be like the CAPS? Although I know you love Pittsburgh, but that's okay. <laughs> I will just ignore that. That's the- neither here nor no, there. No, there. Um, and I'm wondering at this point, if you saw this piece I wrote, you know, grilling Sidney Crosby on going to the White House last year, but we won't, we can talk about that at a different time. I grilled him too. Okay, I grilled him too. Um, but sort of your advice to federations and, and teams, and we're not just talking about teams, we could be talking about like Hockey USA or Canada Hockey, like, What do they need to do better? I agree that the Caps are setting a blueprint right now with Devante Smith-Pelly on their team and all the work that he does in the Black community in D.C., you know, passing out coats to the local school, inviting the Metro Maple Leafs to their arena and to see a game after Devine got uh, racial slurs um, tossed at him on the ice and his team backed him up. I think that the Caps are taking notice of these things and not just just pretending that they're not happening. And I would say that that would be the advice to give to all the clubs, the federations, the big organizations. Don't pretend that racism doesn't exist in hockey. Acknowledge it and do right by these people. And the fan base will grow. If we want to grow the game, we have to include everybody. If we want to say that hockey is for everybody, we need to back up those words with actions. And I really do think that the NHL is working on how to do that. It's a really big organization that's a century old, and there's a standard that's been set. But I think that there are people in the front office who are really trying to to get some change going and acknowledge these um, weaknesses within the league. So if out of 700-something NHL players, there's about 30 that are not white. <laughs> and have you seen other communities try to have this? Like we know Punjabi night, Hockey Night in Canada sort of, you know, caters to a specific de- specific demographic and tries to include people that are Punjabi speaking and, and watching. Have you seen any other communities? You've seen, you know, Black Girl Hockey Club has started this incredible movement. Have you seen any other communities you know out what? there try to do the I same? I have gotten some tweets from people saying that we need to do a Chinese American hockey club or something like that. I haven't necessarily seen that, that develop within the fandom. I have noticed various clubs working towards inclusion. Something that comes to mind that I thought was really cool, and I'm not a huge Kings fan, okay? I'm just going to put that out there. One of my coworkers is a Kings fan, and she's always chirping me about that. You know what? Not a Kings fan, but they, Chinese New Year just happened, and they had a giveaway 
in their arena one i'm not sure if it was the actual night of with uh, the king's logo and uh, in chinese and i thought that was really cool that they they had something like that i'd never seen anything like that before and i do think you know living in southern california especially in Los Angeles, that the Kings have a very unique demographic. You know, there's a lot of Hispanic folks, a lot of um, men of color that I have seen are, are huge Kings fans. And their arena is just filled with so many different types of people. Um, it just, you know, f- specifically for black women, I don't know how comfortable and welcoming the hockey environment has always been. And so I think that that specific demographic has been kind of left by the wayside. And that's just a historical thing. That's not just hockey. You know, that's that's in a lot of different aspects. But because of my love of hockey and my desire to kind of spread the good news about hockey, I... I wanted to see how we could fix that, how we could change that and kind of make a space for black women in the hockey world. Not just, you know, the fans, but also the players. We've been lucky enough to be able to talk with players like Blake Bolden and Kelsey Coles or actually came with us to Washington, D.C. to see a Capitals game. So I think that there's a need out there and just to have a community, to have somebody who looks like you. You know, when you say that there's 30 uh, players of color out of 700 plus uh, professional NHL players, uh, I just think of how hard it is for kids who want to enjoy that game to not see anybody that looks like them on the ice. To see one player out of uh, on a team, or maybe none, Right now is the case with the Pittsburgh Penguins. They don't have one player of color. And how, how does that make a child feel? I know how it makes me feel. So I can only imagine how it would make a child feel uh, wanting to in, enjoy this sport, but not feeling like there was a place for you. So I think like, especially when we were in DC, we had a bunch of little boys with us and their hot and their moms. And I was so amused and excited to see these little black boys so much into the game. I mean, they know the terminology, they know what's going on on the ice. They they know who the players are. They're excited. They, they want to not only watch, but they want to participate. They want to spread the, the good word of hockey to their friends and their family. I think that the Black Girl Hockey Club has a chance to do that within the Black community, I oh, hope. That's fantastic. And it's really, really important. Just this past weekend, I was lucky enough to go to the Canadian Women's Hockey League All-Star Game in Toronto. And the my entourage was of a close friend of mine who's of Somali descent. She wears hijab. She's also probably one of the best hockey players I know. And so she and I walk in with another friend of ours who's been on the show, Dr. Courtney Sito, and who also was a hockey player of Asian descent. And part of our entourage was another professor from Queen's University, also of Asian descent. So it was like super cool to have this melanated crew. And I really wanted us to be the only ones in some way, but we weren't. And uh, there was a lot of young girls hockey teams that were there with Black girls, with girls of Asian descent, with South Asian girls. And for me, that was very exciting because when I was little, 
there was none of that. There was absolutely none. So what you're talking about, what you're doing for your community and what you're essentially doing for the sport is invaluable. And like, I appreciate you so much, like just, and also the excitement in your voice, even though you're talking really big about pens, that's okay. So give me some of your oh, favorite gosh. players. Are you going to chirp me if I say Sidney Crosby? Oh, I mean, no, not, not, not publicly. <laughs> no, no. no. Um, Okay. Okay. Great. No, I as a Penguins fan. I'm actually a huge Yevgeny Malkin fan. NHL 101. He's he's my favorite player. I was lucky enough to get to see the Penguins play last week in Las Vegas, and then a week before that uh, against the Ducks in Anaheim. And so I got my Penguins fix for the year. <laughs> that was kind of fun. But yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Penguins fan. So Sid Crosby and Gino, they're they're up there as my top players. But I'm also, you know, I love watching like Brock Bozer. He is a delight. I have so much fun, just his personality and his he's very good with the puck. Uh, I love watching him. I'm an Ovechkin fan too. I mean, Ovechkin, when we went to go see the Caps play it, they, uh, against Buffalo, I mean, this game went to shootout and everything. Overtime to shootout, OV gets the game winning goal. It was just like he was putting on a show just for us. It was amazing. Uh, he is uh, so cool to to see on the ice. That was a lot of fun. I'm just a fan of the game. You know, I, I go to see the Maple Leafs when they're in town. You talk about Toronto. I love Austin <laughs> Matthews, uh, Freddie yeah. Anderson, you know, like I just, I'm a fan of the game because I'm not a home team fan over here in California. I just go see who I like when they're in town. And I like to go see hockey games. I drag my husband along and he wears whatever shirt I throw at him. And he's a hockey fan for the night, you know? And so that's, I'm just a fan of the game. I I like a lot of teams, but the Penguins, they got my heart and and yeah, so you that's can okay. I'm a displaced Tabs fan, meaning that I live in Toronto. But there's a there's a huge conglomerate, I think, around here of people who are silently Habs lovers. So it's okay. I mean, and you know how I feel about PK Subban. I'm sure you know he was wonderful. And so when the Preds get to the Cup, I, I you know, part of me wants to root for the Preds, and then part of me is like, no, Ovi is so great. I like the Caps because you know, right now my Habs aren't there, my beloved Habs. And you know, I will take and appreciate Austin Matthews because he's fabulous and I'm not going to lie and Nazem Qadri is doing well he's actually Muslim and comes to a lot of events out here and does a lot of charity work for the community so got to give props although I'm not going to do it beyond this podcast because I don't want people to misunderstand um, where can people support Black Girl Hockey Club well you'll find us on Twitter that's where it all kind of started at Black Girl Hockey we also have a blog uh, that's at Black girlhockeyclub.code.blog and Instagram I think is Black Girl Hockey Club. I like to to kind of keep the the folks updated on social media and once in a while if I have some time I'll sit down and pen a piece for the blog. I think the last thing I wrote was about Kaylee Forga, the little black girl hockey player in Minnesota who got her GoFundMe uh, retweeted right. by Matt Dumba yeah. and, and her, her trip overseas funded by the hockey community. So that was the last thing I sat down and wrote. And I, since I'm the only one writing, it, there's not a lot of play. But 
visit it anyways if you want to know how to get absolutely thank you so much for being on burn it all down it was an absolute pleasure to have you and i really hope folks out there support your organization and if there's any fans who identify as women or non-binary could you please give all this support to black girl hockey club it's incredible and you're welcome to a Maple Leafs game anytime. I may not be there, but <laughs> probably won't, probably <laughs> won't be there. Right. But if you ever want to see the Toronto Furies play their Canadian Women's Hockey League team, and they're fantastic, I would love, love, love. If there was something set up here, it would be amazing. So thanks again for being on Burn It All Down. I love that idea. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so every February, we now, you know, come together, I guess, not come together, but we celebrate Black History Month. Uh, Corporations celebrate it. Leagues are celebrating it. The NHL for the first time this year. And I wanted to take a second just to kind of do the historical context and then throw it out there and, and see if here on Burn It All Down, we want to highlight you know, Black athletes historically or contemporarily that we want to shout out. So Black History Month became a thing in the 70s. But before that, there was Negro History Week. And this was created in 1926 by a historian, Carter G. Woodson. And the reason why it was picked in February, a lot of times what people will say, Black History is the shortest month. And there's a lot of running jokes about that. But the reason why they pick February this particular week to celebrate is for a long time in the Black community, both the birthday of Abraham Lincoln on February 12th and of Frederick Douglass on February 14th were celebrated together since, you know, the 1890s or so. So it became kind of a natural fit to say, hey, we celebrate two days in this week already. Let's celebrate a whole week, call it Negro History Week. And one of the early motivations um, for this was to get Black history at that time, Negro history, into curriculums into the nation's public schools to highlight the kind of physical and intellectual and social contributions of African-Americans broadly in society. And so this was also institutionalized. So you see the Journal of Negro History, you see the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. All of these organizations, both academic and socially, started adapting Negro History Week and the popularity grew and the motivation stayed the same, right? This this history isn't being taught. So by the time you get to the 1970s, on the heels of uprisings through the 60s um, and into the 70s on collegiate campuses, particularly by Black students and Black educators who were taken to the streets to demand African-American studies departments, Black studies departments demand this history, at that time, there was a renewed interest in making this week into a month. And that's how you get uh, Black History Month in the early 70s. And from there, by the mid 70s, President Ford, you know, officially recognized Black History Month. And from there, it's just kind of grown in, in its application or, you know, some may argue the teeth have come out of it, whatever, but that is the kind of history of it. And I think that while it's rooted in the United States and, you know, there's a particular empathist on Black Americans trying to say this is American history. It needs to be in curriculums. It needs to not just be in little blue boxes on the side. But like, if you don't understand Black history in the United States, then you don't understand the United States and you don't understand American history. And so 
I think that is a really important origin story, but it's also important to note that from its inception to today, it's never just been rooted in the in the Americas, in the United States. It's always been about recovering a larger Black diasporic history. Um, Canada in the 90s adapted Black History Month in the February as well. And the UK, Ireland, they celebrate Black History Month in October. There's also countries around the country, as you know, Brenda reminds us, that have, say, Black Consciousness Day. And so one of the things that I think that we want to do here is acknowledge Black History Month, acknowledge its roots and the kind of particularities of inserting a Black American history into our, you know, the core concept of American history. And then also we want to highlight some people who are Black and global because the diaspora and kind of diasporic histories are all interconnected and all equally important to give weight to. So that's your mini history lesson today on Burn It All Down. I would love to hear who you guys are highlighting (laughs) uh, this week. (laughs) Okay, Lindsay, who are you picking? So, first of all, Dominique Dawes. (laughs) Let's talk about Dominique Dawes, who (laughs) I just love. And, you know, I thought about Dominique so much as we've had, you know, Gabby Douglas and then Simone Biles, of course, these two phenomenal black gymnasts uh, carrying the flag for Team USA. But then I remember how much seeing Dominique Dawes as part of the Magnificent Seven back in the 90s uh, helped, I think, people all over the world change the face of what gymnastics could be. You know, she was a 10-year member of the U.S. National Gymnastics Team. She was a three-time Olympian, a world championship silver, silver medalist, and she was the first African-American woman to win an individual gymnastics gold medal and the first Black person of any nationality or gender to win an Olympic gold medal in gymnastics. She's gone on after her career her gymnastics career. She's done a lot of great advocacy and leadership work. She was the Women's Sports Foundation president in 2005 and 2006. And, you know, I think you can draw a direct line from her to the greatness and the increased diversity that we're seeing in American gymnastics today. Shireen, who who Uh, do you want to highlight? I realized that she is not American, but one of the athletes who really shaped for me and undid what this particular sport, namely figure skating, which was a land of white pixies and snow dust and like just pretty, pretty in that very European defined way was Soraya Bonley, who was from France. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with her, she is a figure skater and she actually did one of the most impressive moves I have yet to see in 1994 at the World Championships. She actually did a backflip on the ice and we can link to the Sorry, it was in the Nagano Games in 98. It wasn't 94. She did a backflip that was then discounted by the judges because it was considered an illegal move because it was dangerous. Now, only someone with her level of athleticism would be able to pull that off. And I remember her doing it. And I remember instantaneously feeling like she's did this incredible historical thing on the ice and it's not going to matter. And it didn't matter according to the judges who didn't, you know, meddle her at all. I think she came sixth at the Nagano Games. But it was really just sort of indicative of where we are in terms of looking at the whitewashing of that sport and the way that she was dismissed. I mean, I thought 
she was beautiful and graceful and strong because for me, beauty was connotated by strength. Her quads were the most gorgeous thing I had ever seen. Um, and don't don't remember don't forget this is before Serena Williams. I remember wanting to have legs like that. I remember wanting to when she skated around the ice. I wanted I, for me she was just gorgeous. I mean a lot of people really like Katarina Vitt or they really liked Oksana Bayul, but for me Soraya Bonnelly exemplified beauty because it was a beauty that I could see myself reflected in more so than I could for Oksana Biola or Katerina Bett. So it was just, and, and I'm not black, but just she represented something that I wanted to aspire to. Like I'm still in love with her to this day. And she actually is coaching figure skating now in the United States. But she was very clear. And there's one quote that I want to share with everybody. Um, and I think about her quite often every time something comes up. With figure skating, she's the first person, I think, to, even though she was born in Nice, uh, she was adopted by white parents. And she said, this is a quote that was in the Washington Post article from a year ago, because it's 20 years since she did that move. So she said, I don't know if race made it more difficult, but it certainly made me stronger. Maybe I won't be accepted by a white person, but if I'm better, they have no choice. End quote. And for me, that was something that I related to so incredibly. She gave no fucks when giving no fucks wasn't the norm. And you could see that. And that's really something that I wanted to apply in my own life. And I just thank her for that. So if she's listening, Soraya, je vous adore. Like you really shaped a young kid, a brown girl in Nova Scotia in the 90s and how she viewed herself and sport. So I thank you for that. That's a great one. I remember those same things. So you're bringing back some like really nice memories. I I chose a black athlete that is usually most glaringly left off listicles of black athletes. And I think this is going to be maybe one of the m- most controversial things, which is I think that Edson Oranches do Nascimento or Pelé deserves a place in the listicles of uh, important black athletes, not obviously for U.S. history necessarily that we can talk about the cosmos, but in general, for those who aren't into soccer, he's widely considered the greatest athlete and player of the 20th century for the world beyond the United States. He was the most iconic sports figure and not for nothing. He's black and he's often portrayed as the professional slick, apolitical soccer player next to the beloved Garhincha or Socrates, both of whom basically drank themselves to death, didn't have great discipline, but had better progressive politics. And it's true that Pelé made some really shitty statements around the 2014 World Cup that he shouldn't have. And he may not be the most progressive figure that we want, but in the 60s and 70s, the fact that the the most beloved athlete in the world was black was a really big deal. I mean, he played in four World Cups, won three. He had, I mean, it's ridiculous. What is it? It's what, I know what it is, 1,281 goals in 1,375 games. Right? Right? I don't even know what that is. At the age of 20, he began to receive offers from Real Madrid, Manchester United, Juventus. And the Brazilian president, Quadros, passed a bill in 1961 when Pelé was only 21 years old that classified him as a national treasure that objectified him as if he was, you know, like like a 
archaeological remain, effectively making it illegal for Santos to accept transfer offers, and he remained indentured throughout the rest of his career until the very end when he played for the New York Cosmos. So you want to talk about players and labor. Oh, oh, I can't think of a worst example. And if he was white, there is no way that would have happened to him. There is no way. And so I just one more thing. You know, Santos toured Africa during um, decolonization. And there's stories about him stopping civil wars in Nigeria. And that that's not true. But it is true that it's incredibly important in times of apartheid, in times of wars against colonization, that these figures of black excellence toward the Congo, Nigeria, Mozambique, Ghana, Algeria, and so I would just like to say that I think Brazil, which which had three to you know five million people, really hard to figure out, um, enslaved slaves that were forced to come to Brazil, three to five million. I mean, it's just staggering that someone like Pelé doesn't sort of make the cut when it comes to to Black History Month. So I just wanted to shout out him, and I understand that might be a controversial, a problematic pick, Amira. I don't think it's controversial. I just have a question, yeah. um, Bren. Yeah. Like, so from what I know that, like, Afro-Brazilians will say, you know, obviously Pelé is Black, but obviously take umbrage at his comments, not only around the 2014 World Cup, but how they feel like he's disconnected or doesn't do anything to advance social movements that are advanced in by Afro-Brazilian people. Would you say that that is the temperature on the ground in Brazil? In the 1980s and 90s? Yes, absolutely. I I mean, I think one of the problems, though, is that Pelé in the 60s and 70s is is a victim of pretty hardcore racism on the part of the government and everything else. And that gets very lost. But it reminds me. So it reminds me of Jesse Owens, right? Yes. It reminds me of Jesse Owens, who obviously symbolically did all this to defeat, you know, in the 36 games in Berlin, in the Nazi Olympics, as they're called, to win these medals. And the United States used him to say, look, we're, you know, bucking against Aryan superiority. We're like giving the middle finger to Hitler. Yay, Jesse Owens, whatever. And then he came back and they wouldn't shake his hand. He came back and didn't have any financial opportunities. So he's literally making money by racing against horses, right? And so that's Jesse Owens on one hand. On the other hand, if you fast forward to like, say, the events leading up to 68, Jesse Owens becomes a a mouthpiece for the USOC and the IOC and is trying to quell the kind of seeds of revolt and protest within the athletic world world telling black athletes to just chill. He's talking publicly and saying, yeah, race is an issue, but I have found that I can travel the world or doors opens to me, which feels very parallel to things that Pele has said, you know? And, and so it's really interesting sometimes when we talk about this and just history in general is it's messy and it's complicated. And like, there's, all these different expressions of what blackness means and all these different expressions of how that gets marshaled into political positions was specifically, specifically within athletics. And I think that's part of the richness of uncovering this diasporic history and just, you know, history in general is to wade into that mess and murk. And it, it's not about a poster session, right? It's not about a little blue box in the textbook that adds black people to your global or national histories. It's about saying, hey, this is messy. 
And, you know, without it, we don't, we don't get multiple dimensional folks. We get, you know, slogans or Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks high on pedestals, divorced from their humanity, divorced from the, you know, contradictions that made them people. That's it. I think that's a perfect analogy between Jesse Owens and Pele for me. And I think it's also a perfect analogy that Jesse Owens would never be left off of a listicle of black athletes. And Pele is. And I think the reason is, of course, that hostility. But there's also this kind of negativity about the fact that he was unashamed about being disciplined he was unashamed about trying not to drink this sounds ridiculous but i mean people have actually celebrated the fact that garincha was more beloved because he was a partier that pele was more um religious and so they've really done this job of of also working to disassociate him with afro-brazilians and his son is in jail serving decades of a prison sentence And the ways, the strings that they have on him, the ways in which white power in Brazil has always tried to shut down his possibilities, whether it's to leave the country, whether it's through his son, whether it's as minister of sport. He was one of the first black ministers ever in Brazil. Minister of sport tried to introduce anti-corruption laws and they just shut him down. And he's no saint. So you're right. I mean, you need to like really explore all that stuff. But it's also just so telling when you start to study it and you're like, wow, even Pelé doesn't get a pass from racists. Shereen? Yeah, I just have a sort of one a question slash comment. I mean, Amira, what you're talking about, the messiness is so important. Like we see this when we talk about athlete activists, particularly black ones and how and I've learned a lot and I've been very vocal about learning that in journeys. And I thank you for that, Amira, because you're one that pointed it out to me. I think we were talking about male allyship and what a journey can look like. And I've really rethought because I used to be sort of black and white about it and just like hard lines, you know, me and those hard lines and expectations, which isn't fair. So while athletes have lives in history that are very complicated and even to make it more recent, I mean, LeBron was really, really criticized for not being public about Tamir Rice. And he was very, but where he is now and where he was at that point, we have to allow those people, not we have to allow, I'm sorry, that came out wrong. There needs to be the way to have that journey and exist. And I think these type of things, this is the one thing that I worry about and I want your input historically as well. When we put people on pedestals and put them on listicles, we don't holistically look at their existence and their lived experience. And that worries me to take away the complicatedness of that journey and what that looked like. I also didn't know that Jackie Robinson supported Nixon in the first election. Like I didn't know that. And then, but, you know, things were different and that was a bit different and there's context to that as well. But like, just that it's not simple. We can't just put people on a pedestal because it's the month of February and it's convenient for us. Are we looking heartily at the message? Are we looking organically at what they were saying, not just pull quotes from what we think is appropriate? Do you know what I mean? Like, what are your thoughts, Samira? Yeah, no, Shireen, I think that that's really great. Um, And, you know, the problem with watered down histories is that they can be used to advance different political causes. They can be appropriated, right? This is, I'm teaching civil rights movement right now. This is a great, you know, point here that I always start with. What are the misuses of the past? What are the political uses of the past? 
And when you make things complicated and messy, they're a lot harder to appropriate. They're a lot harder to kind of use in um, these particular ways. And I think your point on Jackie is, you know, a great way to end this. Just recently, last week, we, it was the hundredth anniversary of uh, Jack, whatever it was, Jackie. When what, what, what was birthday. it? Birthday. It was his hundredth birthday. Yeah. <laughs> the hundredth birthday of Jackie Robinson. And I think what you point to is particular. I think there's a lot of ways where people are like, if you watch the movie Forty Two, right? You stop. You you stop. You freeze him in time, having just desegregated Major League Baseball. Right. If you don't get into the messiness, you don't get into the weeds. You don't see how the color line was broken by Latinx players years before that. You don't see how black sports writers, not just brand tricky as like a white savior, but black sports writers really were, you know, pushing from multiple angles for integration. And then if you freeze him there, you don't get his activism. You don't get his politics. If people just discover he's a Republican, say, oh, Jackie Robinson was a Republican and then freeze him there, you don't get him leading a walkout of the Republican Party, you know, on the convention floor because of their policies on race. You don't get Jackie Robinson's quotes about how can he stand and and support a flag under a country that clearly doesn't care for Black people. And so he, you know, and I point everybody in the direction of my good friend Leah Wright-Rigger, who is at Harvard and wrote a book, The Loneliness of the Black Republican. She has a great piece on Jackie Robinson as a militant Black Republican. And I think that even thinking about those words, militant Black Republican, Jackie Robinson would be like, huh, what? But like, that is literally the muck. And so I think, you know, my goal, and I really love, you know, everybody that you guys highlighted, but I, you know, really think that it's so important during Black History Month and generally all year to not just celebrate by saying, hey, here's a recovery. Here's somebody we didn't know. But to think about how the inclusion of those stories change what we thought we knew. And so as Lindsay pointed to, you know, how how does a sport change when there's possibilities of of power and high profile black gymnasts, right? How does our concept for a little girl in a random part of the country who can now be something that she can see, how does it change in terms of resource allocation? For years, you know, there's been report after report saying, listen, black women are overpopulated in track and basketball. But if you look at every other sport, which happen to be the sports that grow the most after Title IX, they're not present. And that's about resource allegation as much as it is about tracking them into sports that you think are good for Black women, good for Black people. And so I think that there's a way in which, you know, my, my obviously my life works, what I do when I look about women, Black women athletes, but at least, you know, saying it here, as you go forward for the next few weeks of Black History Month and then stretch that beyond that, think about what it is beyond recovery and how understanding and knowing this history, knowing these stories allow us to get a fuller picture of all of our histories and of humanity and perhaps maybe a way forward. Now it's time for the burn pile where we pile up all the things we've hated in sport this week and set them aflame. Yeah, so... Lindsay? (laughs) Sorry. 
familiar <laughs> bedfellow, <laughs> the NCAA. I'm sorry, guys. I try and be creative here, but it's just really hard. <laughs> so this week, the NCAA <laughs> handed down its sanctions against the University of Missouri. According to an NCAA report released on Thursday in 2015 and 2016, a rogue tutor at Missouri completed math coursework for 12 Missouri athletes across three different sports. For this unforgivable sin, the NCAA has put Missouri on a three-year probation, imposed a ban on the 2019 postseason for both softball and baseball, as well as a potential football bowl game in 2019. And there's also a 10-year ban from working in college athletics for the tutor. Now, obviously, a tutor completing classwork is not good, but... The NCAA on a conference call made it clear that all evidence indicates a tutor acted on her own without direction from colleagues. <laughs> so I would say overall, this feels like an incredibly disproportionate response from the NCAA, especially when you consider that UNC had a much, much longer and more systemic academic scandal. And the NCAA completely looked the other way, didn't hand down really any sanctions against the University of North Carolina, my beloved Tar Heels. And when you consider that as more information comes out about the Larry Nassar sexual abuse scandal, we hear more and more people at Michigan State who are associated with the athletic department who knew about the abuse and decided not to report it. And yet the NCAA has decided that there are absolutely no reason to sanction Michigan State, that they did not, you know, they did not break any NCAA violations. So look, the NCAA is crap. It does not know what it's doing. And the way it doles out punishment is so ridiculous, so absurd, and it's harming college athletics much more than it's helping. It's not helping keeping anyone safe. So I'd just like to throw the NCAA on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Well, while we're on the topic of the NCAA, (laughs) it's already there. I'm going to do a weird burn, which is I'm not quite sure what to throw on the burn pile yet. But I feel as though there's a whole lot coming out of the University of Oregon softball program that needs a little bit of scrutiny. And one of the things that you that Lindsay's burn pointed out and that we're always concerned about is the seemingly inconsistent reaction of both universities and governing body NCAA when it comes to student athleticism and and programs and also their academics. So eight players have left University of Oregon softball roster this season, which is set to begin this week. The Pac-12 defending champs have been in the middle of what's been dubbed a, quote, culture change when Coach Mike White, who had led the team to five Pac-12 championships and five Women's College World Series for University of Texas. And what we get trickles of from the college newspaper and some interviews with White and others is that there's rumors of dress codes, religious overtones that seem that the new leadership um, may be making certain players, perhaps gay players, feel uncomfortable or persecuted it's an incredible number of of players to leave for a program that's just so successful and so i i want to kind of burn how these things take place that when there's a festering problem with students 
and they are still first and foremost students at the University of Oregon. There's not a whole lot of investigation or care into what's happening to make those students leave the program. And so I just want to burn once again the news about them that has everything to do with the results on the field and very little about what's going on beyond that. Burn. Shireen. So my burn comes off of the NHL All-Star Game, and there's a lot of discussion about Kendall Cohen-Chofield, now who actually got her NBC hockey broadcast debut with Pierre Maguire who is originally Canadian, so I'm going to put that out there. I'm going to be straight up about this one. So what ended up happening is during the beginning of the analysis, and let's be really clear about who Kendall Coyne Schofield is. She's the first woman to participate in the NHL Ulster competition. She's a gold medalist at the Olympics. She's a world champion. She generally knows her shit about, and, and none of those things Pierre Maguire has. I just wanted to point that out as well. So he turns to her on air and says, Tampa's going to be on your left. Pittsburgh's going to be on your right. What are you expecting out of this game? And we're paying you to be an analyst, not a fan tonight. Thanks, Pierre. Thanks so much for clarifying with that professional hockey player what and where the teams are located. Because, you know, it was sort of like a, we don't really need your opinion or commentary. Now, that ended up exploding and he was decimated on social media. People were immediately calling out at how vacuous and insidious his comments were, which is fine. So Schofield then ended up making a public statement. And I thought it was really well done the way that she did it on her Instagram. I believe she actually uh, was posted to Twitter as well. She talked about his comments to her and she'd known him for a long time. Um, It was one of the most incredible weeks of her life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, She said that, quote, I've known Pierre Maguire for years. He respects me and as a woman, as a friend. And she didn't think twice about our, their on-air exchange because it was just sort of fun and sarcastic. Okay, so I get that respect to what you're saying. But the summary of what she said was, quote, last night was magical, nerve-wracking, incredible, and I learned two things. I love that being a part of it, and I need to get better. And and all of that I control. So that was really important, the way that she framed it, that she's actually in control. Now, two things about this. First of all, it needs to be said in the Victory Press, Zoe Hayden's editor reported that Coyne Schofield is actually has spoken out publicly about how she doesn't approve. She's like tweets about how anthem protests are don't belong in sports and et cetera, starting with the NFL. So that needs to be put into context because I'm not going to sit here and I can't heartily congratulate Queen Schofield when I know she's like anti-cap. So that's, there's that. She's also friends and very good friends with everyone's favorite alleged rapist, Jonathan Kane, who's a hockey player for the Chicago Blackhawks. So that kind of stuff, I'm sorry, needs to be also laid out there. So as much as I hate Pierre Maguire's comments to her as much as I hate his very open sexism because even if you guys have a great relationship please remember that in broadcasting rule number one is maybe your audience doesn't and that's actually who you're speaking to so you know fail on his part but there needs to be a place to talk about this talk about how problematic coin showfield is because she's being elevated and amplified right now as a hero sorry my hero for my girls in the younger generation doesn't include someone who doesn't believe in anthem protest so gonna burn all of that because guess what it's messy and it's complicated burn. Burn. amira yes i i want to <laughs> every burn pile this week has started with a giggle i want to burn <laughs> I want to 
burn the kind of sweet duplicity of Robert Kraft, who tries to keep his very nice, clean Air Force Ones in multiple lanes at the same time. So Bob Kraft cares about power and Israel, and he knows that he's in New England. He has given for years to Democratic causes. But I want him to know, Bob, we need to have a talk. You cannot think that you can, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you gave to President Obama. It does not matter how all of the considerable work you've done on domestic violence uh, within the New England area. It doesn't matter if you're visiting Meek Mill in, in prison, and it certainly doesn't matter if you're dancing with Meek and Cardi this weekend. If you turn around and go on Fox and Friends and give credibility to Mango Mussolini, it doesn't matter how fair and democratic you are, how much you love the initiatives that your black players are working on, how how permissible, how how you're like, you know what, we don't care if they protest. We encourage them protesting. It doesn't matter that you publicly are supporting patriots who have knelt or put up their fists during the anthem. If you turn around and pal around with the Cheeto in chief, like it doesn't, you, you can't do both. And that's the thing that really irritates me about you right now, Robert, because I understand that he called you every day, every week, whatever, after Myra died. And I'm sure that on a personal level, you consider him a friend, but he is harming the very people you think you're rocking with. And that irritates me because you want to have it both ways and not everybody has that luxury. So if you watch the video of him dancing around with Meek Mill and Cardi B, uh, the Super Bowl party, and he looks like the cool owner and Meek is palling around with him and he's on a criminal justice reform with him and he's talking about his domestic violence policies and all of this. And it seems like you can't figure out how to mesh that up with his continued support and friendship with a president who harms, you know, everybody, basically. It's because he's rich and he can live in a bubble and he can do that while the rest of us are hurt by it. And I want to burn that down. Burn. 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 I hope Robert Kraft is listening to Burn It All Down. Also, can we just like specifically though put the we dancing the with Cardi B advice. on the burn pile? <laughs> like just like that specifically. <laughs> also, I just <laughs> just want to highlight that specifically. <laughs> a, a group burn. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate the wonderful accomplishments of women athletes in our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Honorable mentions go to Frances Tesladeau for winning gold in the big air competition at the Freestyle Skiing and Snowboard World Championships, and to Marielle Thompson of Canada for her win in Ski Cross at the Worlds, which is ongoing in Utah and Phoenix as we are recording. Farishta Shakmiri, an Afghan football official who has qualified for the position of FIFA Women Assistant Referee. Lindsay Vaughn, who announced she will retire after the World Championship because her knees are injured and her body needs a break. The GOAT has won more than 82 races in her storied career. Former Canadian national soccer player, now sports journalist with Sportsnet, 
former Canadian national soccer player and now sports journalist with Sportsnet, Caroline Zwed, for silencing Toronto Raptors' Norman Powell's sexist attitude during an interview as she juggled a basketball in heels. The Athletic Bilbao women's side for drawing over 48,000 fans for their Copa de la Reina match against Atletico Madrid. Hanin Shreka of the GWS Giants for being the first Muslim woman to play Australian rules football for a professional team. Glasgow Team of the Year awarded to the Glasgow City Football Club who won the Scottish Women's Premier League title for an incredible 12th time in a row in 2018. Alex Scott, former Arsenal women's side footballer and England national for her nomination as best pundit for the SGA Sports Journalist Association in the UK. Katie Gway, Monday night, Gway will become the first woman to referee a game in the 67-year history of the men's beanpot tournament, one of the first showcase events in college hockey. Shekila Hill from Grambling State, who completed her second quadruple double, second, that steals, assists, rebounds, and points. The first person ever to repeat that feat in NCAA history. And finally, can I get a drum roll? Badass Woman of the Week goes to Raquel Barbosa, Brazilian referee who stood her ground and kept her composure while being attacked physically and verbally by players during the CSA versus Marisi match this week. Salve, Raquel. In these dark times, what's good in your world, friends? Lindsay. What's good is that this week it is going to be in the 50s. It's going to get up to 60 at one point. And I, January was a very, 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 very cold month for DC compared to DC and compared to what we're used to. So goodness, am I excited to get out and Mo is very excited because Mo has been extra cooped up this month. So we're going to go for a nice long walk slash run this afternoon. Yeah, I was like, we're at 32 degrees. That's what's good, (laughs) which is so sad. It's just been so cold. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, But yeah, I uh, know what's good in my world. Mentorship. I just want to take a moment and shout out mentors because, you know, there's a lot on my plate a lot of times and I'm juggling a lot. But I have such a great team of people not only supporting but guiding me. And I particularly want to give a shout out to Marsha because she has all of her own juggling act that she's doing and is constantly modeling how to be not only the best mentor, but the best, you know, all around person. And Bren, who has been such a great mentor for me, um, and I'm specifically talking about the Academy right now because I have a lot of mentors outside of that, but I just really want to shout out academic mentors as I'm preparing my dossier for my official second year review, which is a fairly daunting and annoying process. Um, I just want to reflect and shout out the people, generally women who have been so kind and good and generous with their time and their support and their investment in me as I, uh, you know, try to be like a real adult and professional historian. I think we saw on the show there's a whole lot of professional historian going on there, Mira. <laughs> Shireen. Um, I'm very, very excited, and I can't say why yet, <laughs> but it includes pajamas. 
And I'm waiting. I'm not good with secrets, but I'm holding on to this one closely. My soccer team is great. We have fun every week with them. I enjoy them. I love them. I love playing Sundays are my match days. I just, it brings me a lot of joy. Soccer brings me a lot of joy. We're playing 5v5, which is great because it's inside. It's like futsal, but it's on turf, turf, sorry. And the stadium is freezing. It's so cold, but it's fine because like I'm so covered and so is everybody else, which is great. I also want to shout out that I will be avoiding the Super Bowl and that's really fun for me, but I will partake in recipes because I find the food culture around sporting events really interesting. I also am reading up a little bit on Dirk Nowitzki and that's bringing me a lot of joy because I really like Dirk Nowitzki and it's bringing me back to really the point of Dirk Nowitzki, which is me going back to one of my second favorite sports movie, Like Mike, because Little Bow Wow just crushed that and I enjoyed that movie tremendously. And my favorite scene in the movie is with Dirk Nowitzki. Not little Bella anymore. He just totally is. His daughter totally is amazing. Is. I just have to say, she's so cute. She's just, and wow. is just like, is she so cute? Oh, she is so she's so adorable. Wasn't he literally just arrested for assaulting a woman yesterday? Was it? Oh god. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll file that under like just problematic. But uh, Dirk Nowitzki's also love story is really cool. He ended up meeting his wife at a seed project, and I love seed project. It's an organization that propels and encourages and mentors basketball players in continental Africa and he was he was working and volunteering his time and he met his future wife there and they ended up it was a really beautiful story that he opened up about I like Dirk he's best friends with Steve Nash who I stand so yeah I'm enjoying that so that's what's good and it's zero degrees Celsius in Toronto so I'm grateful for the warmth I need that converted (laughs) for me It's zero. I think it's pretty well zero Fahrenheit. <laughs> zero Celsius, isn't it? I don't know. It's like, I don't know. How dare you use a rational temperature system? <laughs> what do you like? Use decimals and stuff? Like, totally. you know, you know metric system? Numbers. I'm so bad. How I dare love metric, the rest though. of the world challenge our absolutely irrational sense? Of <laughs> it really inches. makes no sense, oh. but it's so bad. Oh like, God. we were driving in Canada. It's 32, though. We were yeah. driving in Canada and it like told us how far our exit was. And we're just like, we'll miss it. <laughs> we can't calculate it. It's so bad. We're so ignorant. Oh, yeah. No, but you know, I feel the same way when I'm in the U.S. and it says like four miles. I'm like, I feel that's like 600 kilometers. I don't know what miles means. And I'm just like, Shereen, why? But Shereen, why? no one does because oh. it's folk <laughs> culture. It's and folk. You know, it's just based on folk. Yours is based on science. Scientists don't use inches. And when I think you know, of miles, so oh, when I think you don't miles, need to justify yourself. When I saying. think of mile, I automatically think of eight mile, which is M and M, and that's all I think of that's when good. I see mile. That's, that's right. That's my reference. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fine. What's good in my world is this conversation right now, <laughs> and I'm just gonna close it out by saying the other thing that's very good in my world is the very first weeks when you're teaching and nothing's been due and you've given no grades and everyone thinks you're a nice professor and you think they're the best <laughs> students who ever lived. So that's the other thing that's great in my world. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thanks for listening. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback. You can follow us at Burn It Down Pod on Twitter. 
Visit our website at www.burnitalldownpod.com where we have transcripts, guest lists, and previous shows. You can also email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And again, thanks to all the patrons who support us week in and week out. If you're not a patron, do consider becoming one at www.patreon.com backslash burnitalldown. On behalf of Shereen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, and Dr. Amira Rose Davis, I'm Brenda Elsie. Have a great week and burn on, but not out. Burn on.